Coming to you from Charlottesville, Virginia, this is On Simpler, a limited series podcast brought to you by Master of Public Policy students from the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia. Throughout the four-episode series, we will be discussing Cass Sunstein's 2013 book, Simpler, The Future of Government. Sunstein, a Harvard Law professor, served in the Obama administration from 2009 to 2012 as the administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, otherwise known as the Regulatory Czar. I'm Joshua Margulies. Welcome to On Simpler. In episode one, I'm joined by my classmates Sam Morales, Walter Herring, and Joe Bolshe. Please join us for our roundtable discussion about the book. So, Sunstein, in the book, Simpler, The Future of Government, mm. uh, his main thing on page one, he says, in the future, governments, whatever their size, have to get simpler. Very declarative statement. Having read the book, what do you all think of his prescriptions? What do you think of this notion of just getting simpler? I mean, it, simpler kind of meant, like, choices are easier, but not necessarily, like, all of the background, like government action that leads to the nudgy part. Yeah, I was thinking too, for me, simple. It, I just listened to another podcast that was about uh, Trump trying to eliminate red tape. And it was, you know, basically like, oh, here's like our a big stack of paper, but it's like our bureaucratic stuff now, and we're going to chop away at that. I think that's what I was thinking of when I came into this book of what simpler meant. And I think I'm leaving with not that because I think the government getting simpler doesn't make that side of things any less complex. But that is perhaps. a part of the book. It is. It is part. It is part of the book. But I think I'm thinking maybe that's not the right way of putting it. But like the the process of making things simpler is not as simple as I thought it was. Maybe I think mm, that's no. I think that's what I'm trying to get at. Because in my mind, whenever I hear about these nudges that are just like it's like oh yeah, what a great idea. Um, I think Sunstein, given that he has experience working like in the White House, was able to say, actually, it's really challenging to actually implement this stuff, and it's usually not as black and white, maybe, as it seems from my perspective. That's exactly what I was feeling about. Just We've been, our entire legal structure has been based on presuppositions that are completely old and outdated, and now we have, like, he talks about... Like, we need to we understand, like, human error, we have cognitive dissonance, we have biases, and we have big data now that we didn't even have 30 years ago. And so we need to, like, combine these new, like, um, foundations that we've built to, like, make government simpler. But, of course, it's easier said than done because we still have foundational ideas that are contrary to what he wants or he's prescribing to the United States. The big data stuff fascinated me. Yeah, that was that was the part where I, or, or at least as far as it went with how person like personalization as a as a nudge is not something I had ever really thought about. So it well, was, it, it gets a little tricky though because I know Amazon has, I think they may have already gone so far as to patent the the idea of like preemptive ordering and shipping things to you. So I know he talks about Amazon a little bit of like pre order like maybe pre-populating like a shopping cart but they've already gone so far as to uh, you know at least have the intention at some point of 
potentially putting out into the, the market. Uh, sending items to your door, much like, you know, he talks about in the book, you know, magazine subscriptions. And you sign up, first one's like a penny, and you kind of just forget about the fact that you keep getting this magazine for like $10 a month, whatever it is. By the way, has anyone done, has anyone done that? I definitely have. Done what? Magazines? Yeah. Done like something similar to the what he describes with magazines, where just sign up for free trial and then forget. <clears throat> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Signed up. I paid for YouTube bread for a month. It was that. <laughs> <laughs> just because it's a show two of four fell for such, for such desire. I just got YouTube bread for the road trip from Boston to Charlottesville, but. Um, yeah, well, well, uh, but yeah, so Amazon has like gone so far as to patent this idea of like. Sending things to your door without having you actually, you know, click the button to say, yes, I want to purchase this, even if it is just a one-click thing. It's like, no, we're sending it to your door with the expectation that we know so much about you because of big data and the fact that we can mine things and, you know, learn from your habits that we're going to just assume you want this until you tell us to stop. And that's where I think it can get a little dicey with the privacy and just get dangerous to a certain extent. That would work well with groceries, though. I mean, <laughs> do you, like, sign for it at the door, and if you don't, they just eat the losses on sending something to you? The fact that it has not actually been implemented, I, it's hard to say. So I think, I think the reason, and Sunstein talks about this, the reason something like that doesn't play is because that, that's an example where a, a, a opt-out type nudge that market forces would correct. Some people would like it, though. Like the changing names when you get married thing where it's like enough of a value that you go ahead and take the extra effort? Yes, and I also think he had, I can't remember where it is in the book, he has another section where he's explicitly talking about companies doing things like this. Uh, I think it was in the context of credit cards maybe or something. Mm -hmm. Um, Or it's like like, the ATM overdraft maybe? Yeah, I think that was it. Yeah, where it's like you have to to, explicitly opt out of this if we if you don't want us to do it um and this strikes me as one of those and he was saying that really really bad nudges at least in this like in the marketplace market forces will correct for it because people will say wow that's bs i don't want to do business with them theoretically amazon probably has enough market share now to where they could probably get away with something like this i don't know but in my mind i would be reticent to do business with a company that is very clearly trying to to, like take advantage of inertia at my expense. But I, I, my intuition is that a lot of people wouldn't think that they're being taken advantage of, and they, they would actually welcome this. I personally would feel terrified and uncomfortable, but some people would want that. That's why he says he wants the, there to be some kind of balance, and he talks about with the like how access to food is like a huge, the biggest factor of obesity in the United States, and I could see like. And the full disclosure part of, like, the transparency of how these systems are implemented in the first place. Like, the, these are the things that would need to be balanced with each other. If there was some sort of, like, like opt, like opt automatically opt-in system in place, then he's saying that there are, like, ca- caveats to that, right? When he's talking about full disclosure, when he's talking about, um, like, choice overload, right? And, like, we don't want, we don't want to totally rely on system one because system two needs to be reinforced as well and be given like a chance to develop and then to like like especially like I, I think your concern is with like 
not only privacy but with impulsive purchases and like people not yeah. opting out of yeah so then that's that's what I'm getting at with those two like things balancing everything with at least with the automatically opt-in part Glenn Beck <laughs> anybody have thoughts it really I, it's not all that important I just thought it was funny it was definitely funny yeah. I, <laughs> I kind of had I agree I agreed with every I wasn't I wasn't totally put off by the first section of the book, but for some it it, it struck me as like very not quite whiny, but I was like, does, does all that sort of commentary really need to to be there? Because I think this is more of a sort of like authorship point, but I feel like like that's going to turn a lot of people off from reading your book, and not even just reading it, but accepting. The arguments he's trying to make, right, like, as valid, correct. If if you know you may be persuaded, I'm not saying that they're fantastic or one way or the other. You know, great, yes, no, yeah. yeah. But I'm saying, I mean, I understand. Regardless, he worked in the Obama administration. There's not like he knows his audience. That is yeah. a fact. Yeah. Well, so, it's, like, it's like Hillary Clinton saying <laughs> maybe that, that's maybe that's right. Yeah, it's like Hillary Clinton calling all the like Republicans deplorable. Yeah, I mean it. It, it is. It is. It is like that. I think. Maybe not, maybe not quite that. Not as ex- extreme. Extreme, but. It did seem like he like understated some of the just basic like values dissonance that was coming in with the Oregon thing, where it's like. With the what thing? The like steal your organs thing. That, oh, like, oh yeah. Yeah. That was part of the Glenn Beck stuff, right? Yeah, because I think so. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like he was in favor of like harvesting organs or something. Yeah, it, it <laughs> seems like he didn't seem to like recognize at all that some people just do have like a weird thing about like they don't want people like using their organs when they die, and there's yeah. that like value that you have to weigh into the whole. There's like, religious reasons for it as well. Like I know, like very religious Jews, you can't like do any kind of autopsy. I would I would be surprised if you could actually donate organs and a lot of like religious sex and stuff as well. Yeah. So it seemed like he didn't hit on the like the political extreme like worst person in the world version of that was just echoing like some more rational sentiments that were just built on personal values. Yeah. I thought the the organ stuff is actually really interesting. He didn't go into a lot of depth in this, but, well, alright, so, I guess we should start with, like, choice architecture. I thought that was, like, the most compelling stuff in the book, like, opt-in versus opt-out, all the mm. default stuff. I yeah. thought, at least from a government perspective, uh, which is, you know, he worked at what, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, so he was, like, the regulations are. I thought that was the most compelling stuff, and there's a lot of information on organ donation and like other studies about organ donation and he, he brings it up like the presumed consent thing where a lot some European countries I think he uses Germany and Austria as example mm-hmm. or something like that you know it's presumed consent so it's an opt-out system and Germany has like what like a 99% rate or it's some astronomically high rate of people willing to donate organs because nobody opts out because like Frank Reynolds says, when I'm dead, like you can do whatever the f you want with my body. Like who, who I don't care. Throw me behind a dumpster. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then like in Austria, you know, or like in America, it's opt in. So like, much lower rates, you know, people die because they can't get a kidney, they can't get a liver. Uh, there's a I know I've read some literature on this, like it is 
so much better. But what he doesn't talk about is he brings up active choice, uh, where you like you know you mandate a choice be made. Mm-hmm. Like you know when you go to the DMV, at least in New Jersey, you know my license says I'm an organ donor. I had to answer a question. Well, I guess I didn't have to answer the question, but in California, New York, and I want to say Illinois, they have laws on books that say, you know, when you go to the DMV, it's a mandated choice. So an active choice is just a mandated choice. Mandated choice, you have to answer this question if you are going to proceed and get your license. Right. So the reason they've gone down the, the mandated choice route is in presumed consent, there's still the option for family members of the deceased after the fact, you know, once you're dead, say so you get horribly, you're in a car accident, something like that, you don't have like any kind of living will or anything on the books. If it's presumed consent, families can still come in and say, no, we don't want this, our, you know, our son <coughs> or daughter to, to donate their organs. By mandating the choice, you have a legally binding document so, and you still increase the rates at which, uh, or at least this is what New York and California found, by mandating the choice, you still increase the rate at which people donate organs, you know, not 99% or whatever it is in Germany, but you still get there. And then you also avoid that, the legal hurdles after the fact of families coming in, which, you know, you're talking about creating a more efficient system because you're reducing the legal barriers that might come with families intervening in the process. He doesn't bring that up in the book at all. I thought it was that kind of choice architecture is actually very interesting, at least to think about and talk about from more of like a like so a if I'm you right, in, in this case, the, the nudge of default options is not necessarily optimal or most efficient, I guess. Not in all instances, no. Yeah. Like the presumed consent was interesting. Like I think, you know, in my personal opinion, yeah, we should probably have presumed consent. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean the mandated choice thing. You're adding an extra layer of administrative function that probably is also costly in and of itself. And most people, their families probably wouldn't be all that offended if they're donating organs and helping to prolong other people's lives. Mm-hmm. That's just my assumption. I could be wholly off base. You're saying that when he said, like, I might discuss that later, he didn't actually talk about it in the book. Hmm. It's not that he doesn't, it's just that there's more literature okay. out there that I think is actually, it would help make a more compelling book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder if he was, like, trying to, because you guys were talking about, like, you started off kind of, like, you know, on Glenn Beck and that could be polarizing that maybe he didn't want to talk about that because he didn't want to throw people off or I don't know I don't know yeah uh, that's interesting though any thoughts on choice architecture no none specific I mean I, I think that's a theme that'll be woven in yeah well I mean like throughout but I, I find like the opt-in opt-out discussion to be like profound I think there's a lot of things that, you know, local governments, state governments, federal government that can do that I think makes the book when you like in in the larger context, like of making things simpler, like the, the opt out kind of notion is very compelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I think that's right. Sorry, I had to think about like opt-in versus opt-out, but yes, I, I think that's right. Yeah, and, and we can get to this later with the paternalism aspect of everything, but anybody disagree? Like that opt-out is, anybody want to push back? That the like opt-out, opt-in like framework is, uh, regardless of your politics, it's a, it's a very like compelling notion, you know, that governments can do things or, you know, private institutions can do things because they think it is for the betterment of the people they serve. That's like... And they just... It's automatic for the people unless you want to opt out. I don't know if this is, like, pushing back, but it's really interesting how there's, like, a moral argument that you kind of touched on, especially with, like, the organ... Like... The organ stuff, but then, like, I totally think of it just, like, people are going... If people are actively going... If people really don't want the default, then they're going to actively opt out. And it's better, like, it kind of... It's kind of utilitarian, like, just... If if it's better for everyone else, then just opt yeah. in. Like, it, it, that's not really... I don't know, it's like... It's kind of like... He talks about like procrastination as like the foundation of how what like why we would do something like this and like how people are gonna like be lit too lazy to like opt into the ideal choice for most people. But then like, well, there's also yeah. complexity and in, in, like right. that can make things just even more complicated. Yeah, like yeah. With health insurance I know came up because he you know he was around during the passage of Patient Protection Affordable right. Care Act. Which he talks about a lot. I, I had some pushback on the, those chapters uh, or portions of the book, rather. Hmm. Morales, he does have a really good, to your point just now, which is like that. It, those that really don't like the default can opt out. It's not exactly in the opt-in at, opt-out sense, but he does have a good discussion later where I can't find it right now. It's in the nanny state part, like hmm. towards the end about yeah. paternalism. Yeah, exactly. Right about like sort of you know the person that really wants really wants to smoke cigarettes or eat like terrible foods even if you put those at the back of the grocery store that and the, yeah you're right this is maybe we should save this for the paternalism conversation we can get there now it doesn't really but, matter but yeah the idea that 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 for me is really compelling mm-hmm. which is yeah the balance between sort of freedom of choice and um but also efficiency i guess that read really well for me which is just like yes if you want to do these things that option is still available for you we have made it somewhat harder for you to do so because in this case these things are are pretty objectively bad mm-hmm. but we're not gonna we're not gonna you know impose prohibition here right so okay well this leads me to the question that i was gonna ask what do you all think of michael bloomberg's decision to outlaw or ban like what was yeah. it 24 ounce sodas <laughs> i because where did he land on i don't did he, he i don't it, it wasn't clear at yeah, all. it yeah. was right he, he seemed even, cool with giving it some shit but like yeah, he but he also did like Stewart. This yeah. yeah yeah right um so it's like super relative because and i don't think i'll be able to find the picture here but like that whole picture of like in the 1950s, what a um, like a fast food meal yeah. looked like compared to how it does now. Mm. It's like if the government decided right now to ban 40 ounce sodas. 110, if you're looking for it. If okay, if if um, if the government today said that we they were gonna ban the sale of like let's say um, 
Not 42 ounces, because that's that's, that's, that's that's happening absurd. now. <laughs> <laughs> no, but if they were just, like, saying that to ban, like, that amount of ounces, then to us, that would be, like, less extreme. Or, no, that would be more extreme. But, like, maybe, okay, like, relative to, like, 1950s, if they say the government back in 1950s say, like, no sodas, like, over 12 ounces. Yeah. Then they would be, like, okay, whatever. But, like, it's so ingrained now, like, in our society that, like... 16 ounces like no I, I need like I want my slushy like so let me ask you this slushing you the, know yeah <laughs> when he brings up cigarettes right he gives out like I think like 13 different like policy prescriptions that you yeah, might want to venture down overwhelming but very right, but a they, useful way to think about it and they're sure. all nuanced and they have their own like yeah. merits but the last one I thought was interesting right because it's pretty much a direct corollary to the Bloomberg stuff yeah. it was limiting the amount of cigarettes per pack to 10 as mm. opposed to the current of mm. 20. What do you think of that? It is At a certain point, I feel like it's just like putting on a further tax on an addiction without like yeah. actually solving anything. That was my gut too because I remember he has this quote that it was really powerful actually where that he's, he's like, a fine is not a nudge. Which because it's a financial incentive. yeah there's a financial incentive so in my mm-hmm. I'm with Joe on this I think in my mind that is effectively it's just a tax right it's just making my yeah. twenty cigarettes more expensive well the the pack is priced appropriately it's just you're limiting the size of the pack yeah to 10. it's not going to be half the cost of a twenty pack though yeah it would all right so let's put, we'll put we'll play well, that well let's assume it's if, half the cost. I, see, I see what you're saying if you're putting a if you're putting like a quota Instead of a price ceiling, then you're doing the same thing economically, right? Like, there's still going to be some kind of deadweight loss associated with that. You're still, like, putting a price on, like, on that externality. Even though one of the biggest things that pissed me off about Shim Sox class was that cigarettes were not a externality. But that was a, <laughs> that was a hard pill to swallow. But <laughs> I think also, though, with the soda thing, that's, like, the nudge part is trying to establish what a serving is. But, like, a 10-pack of cigarettes versus a 20-pack, neither one of those is even trying to establish, like, a daily serving, I would hope. No, I like, right, but the, the, I guess what I was getting to was, like, with the Bloomberg thing, right? If you outlaw, or if you ban 24 ounces, right? It's not... And, you know, remember Sarah Palin? She brought her 7-Eleven big gulp cup yep. to, like, that speech. Yeah, it's... <laughs> they were outlawing, or banning, rather, the, the portion size, right? If you wanted to... You can go take your 12-ounce soda cup, go back to the soda fountain, and refill. Mm. There was literally or, no restriction on you refilling Or better your in this case, like buying two 12-ounce right. sodas. And, which is yeah. absurd. Why would you do that? And the whole impetus to the Bloomberg case was there's studies that show like people are less inclined to, have, you know, to go back to the soda fountain to, re- to refill. No, I'm also looking at yeah. I see. I see what you're saying now because I, I remember this study that he that I'd never heard of that he uh, puts in here is the Campbell's tomato soup. That one. was the best. That was oh yeah, bonkers. <laughs> yeah, where it's just oh, they I just hope there's like yeah. YouTube it's, it was like it was <laughs> refilling. Someone that just never it's thinks like, about the bowl emptying. Like, and then like at what point? At what point did the participant? Are the yeah. participants like yeah, wait a second? Wait a second. I've been eating this for three hours. Also, and it's still full. I would be like. At a certain point, you know, like 
Five minutes into a hot bowl of soup, you know, I'm going to want to, like, tilt that bowl and get the last scrap and, like, yeah. last little morsels of, like, whatever. I don't know if it's, like, a chunky type of soup or it's just tomato soup. But, yeah, you want to, like, lift that bowl and scrape. Yeah. If I don't get to that point, something's going to. Yeah. These people are fucking stupid and it's not <laughs> externally valid. I was I was trying to put myself in that mind frame of, like, <laughs> how long would I have gone without noticing this? And I'm, I'm like, probably, like, way longer than I care to admit, I think, is the answer to my question. I mean, I guess that's the whole point of the study. But, but anyway, Josh, I think your, your point is, is sort of that, right? It's just like if we present these things in smaller packages, people are going to be feeling less inclined to smoke a pack. Like, Or rather, if people smoke a pack a day, they'll smoke 10 instead of 20, in other words. Right. And it's not like you're limiting people's ability to go buy cigarettes. Yeah. It's a behavioral nudge. To I just say. wonder, like, what – if he – there is empirical studies that he talks about where, like, cigarette taxes do work. So, like... Right. But, yeah. Well, he, he didn't endorse that last one. I just thought it was right. interesting to compare the Bloomberg case with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah you, you're right. He does talk about how, you know, people get enjoyment out of not smoking as much because a lot of people don't actually want to smoke and they're just addicted because yeah. it's a, you know, it's a mental condition, you know. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, that's where his argument gets a little dicey, though, because he says, like, nudges are good and not overly paternal when, like, you're just helping someone get all the information on a decision they would make in the same way if they had perfect information. But that still involves assuming what a person really wants. And, like, the smoking thing is a good example. Like, well, I think it's, it's what most people would want. Right, and that's where it yeah. falls apart is, like, you apply the generality, but everyone is affected by it, and they might be swayed toward a decision they wouldn't have made anyways. Yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking that's interesting. You see, I do feel like the smoking example is one that people would, you know, kind of probably, you know, bristle at a little bit. But then I'm thinking of another, like the savings plan example. Well, maybe people would be just as upset about that. So, like, defaulting into putting some reasonable amount of money into your retirement account as opposed or instead of having to like opt in to that I guess which from my own personal experience was great my first job was at a school district which automatically put my money into a pension it's good for most people yeah right right so but I, and I was thinking like well no one would have a problem with that surely someone would also have a problem with that but it seems like that would be less controversial than like cigarettes, but now that I'm thinking about it, the same argument applies, right? It's yeah, it's all determined by a personal budget. So I think you somehow need to make that outcome you're pushing for clear for it to be a really transparent thing. So you're saying make well known the intent of the nudge? Yeah. Which to some extent he argues for too. Yeah. For more transparency. But he also like Sometimes he, I think, where he said, like, oh, this stuff's all out in the public, like, there's no worry, but I think, like, publicly accessible versus transparent are two different things that he doesn't really draw a clear distinction on. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know that I thought about that. Interesting. So you're saying, while he, while he would probably argue that, let's take the cigarette example, right, like, he would argue that... No, no, it's very clear why we are doing this. Like, we, you know, we like smoking is bad. We know this. Yet, 
it being clear is different than like the government being transparent about why they're doing something which i think i agree with by the way yeah like i like the 10 pack thing like if you just say like now it's the law that you can't buy cigarettes in more than a 10 pack like that doesn't make explicit that you're like trying to get people to smoke less and if you just like let those psychological effects run their course without being clear that there was some intent behind it Mm -hmm. then that's where like I think it gets a little bit sketchy. Yeah, didn't Glenn Beck say, like, he wants to trick you? I think that's what he said. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that, that gets to the paternalism yeah. argument. It's like people think they're being manipulated. And, yeah. well, yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah, they are. Because, <laughs> oh, and then there's a whole chapter on this, right? Chapter three, human error. Yeah. People, people are, are good. At people are, things. yeah. And, <laughs> and, and he, it was so crazy how he transformed the Chicago school like these neoclassical these neoclassical economists who like assume that humans are rational and act in their own self-interest and he's like wait but no <laughs> but they're not i actually did want to before we actually go on to like human error and how humans can be really dumb um well i think the the argument and sam i know you're gonna have thoughts on this maybe um he brings up the example a bunch of times of Maybe not an example, but there was one other like prominent writer argues that you know poor people are actually in a really terrible spot because they have to think about pretty much every decision they make. Rich, they if rich people do nothing, then they're fine. They're fine. They're fine. They're fine. If poor the people do nothing, right. then most of the time they're they're screwed. Yeah, I, yeah. Love, I love that. Yeah, yeah. we. I took a uh, Prof J's class on nudges, and we talked a lot about that stuff and like referring to it as slack that like rich people yeah basically they have all this time and money that poor people don't have to make these decisions um i felt like that was the most compelling part of the book for me just the the notion that just that disparity yeah yeah, where it's like nudges could be huge for people that don't have the time to like fully evaluate everything uh yeah i yeah i wholeheartedly agree wholeheartedly agree Thoughts? Thoughts? Yeah, no, I think it was... That wasn't... Who who was it that actually said that? It wasn't him. Something with a D. Some woman. Yeah, that's that's right. Anyway, yeah, that was was super compelling. It also got me thinking about the idea of sort of who... Who are we really designing nudges for, in other words? And I think like... And also, and and it also got me thinking... Esther Duffluff, sorry. Esther Duffluff, thank you. It also got me thinking that... And who and who are the people objecting to them, right? And like there, and maybe there is some sort of socioeconomic. Like we're divided along socioeconomic lines on that. I don't know. Like, is it all the Glenn Becks of the world that are saying they're taking my personal liberty? Whereas it's like we're not really. These things aren't necessarily designed for the Glenn Becks of the world, right? Because he's already if Glenn Beck wants wealthy. if he wants to go buy a 80, 80 ounce soda and a forty pack of cigarettes. He can make that rational choice. That's that's his deal, right? Actually, he can hire someone else to do it. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I wish he talked more about like how like the social influences part in chapter three. Um, like he has a little bit little paragraph there about how we form political beliefs on page sixty six. Um, Wisdom of the crowd. Yeah, I I I always think it's it's kind of baffling 
every time I like think about how like I always assume that most kids in college are drinking, but it's like not the case at all. <laughs> yeah. It's like I don't know. I, I was thinking a lot about this like earlier too about just like um Oh, I don't even know where I'm going with this anymore, but just it's me- what's around you. Media Media can give you the truth and stereotypes at the same time, which is interesting because mm. I live I lived in Bethesda, Maryland, like a lot of people really fit. Like you, there's not much obesity there. Mm-hmm. But like I understand that there's obesity in America because of the news, but there's also a stereotype attached to like I mean of course there's like stereotypes attached to like um to America, like fat Americans because of the news. It's like, it's like good and bad because I'm getting like an understanding of like how things are in the United States, but I'm also getting a stereotype. So I wish that he talked more about how that makes our political beliefs, like how that forms our values and how that like, and how that like creates this polarization. And I wish that he talked a lot more about what he thinks is like the right, like how do we know what the right thing is versus what the wrong thing is based off of those like how we seek value well he's a, he's also a lawyer he's not a social psychologist okay, yeah i know that <laughs> but i just think that like i mean this is going to the end of the book again but when he talks about like impermissible motivations like i wish he actually gave examples more examples about like nudges that were used historically that were like malicious you know and mm-hmm. like um, especially in the context of like our thwarted value system or not thwarted like just our fucked up distorted value system I mean he keeps nudge pretty closely as a definition to like government action so anything under the guise of like marketing that just like happens yeah. in the private sector that's like equally as sketchy and nudgy probably isn't going to come up in this book invisible gorilla <laughs> oh, he does. He does. That's interesting because he does bring up like the Am- like Amazon and some of these other yeah. more private sector. I don't think he was dismissing the private sector nudges. I think that he was just more, you know, his experience is largely, at least for the purposes of this book, in government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he mentioned in the Invisible Gorilla thing that like um, he was talking about the need for the. Um, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and Dot Frank that like these banking institutions or these financial institutions are like essentially like having people miss the invisible gorilla and so those institutions were made to like make sure that doesn't happen mm-hmm. so it's like countering nudges with nudges is that what this whole thing basically like these Private, the private industry is you. They understand the human mind to some degree, where they can manipulate it. So then, government mm. needs to step in and manipulate, that's, or manipulate that, that people happen? away from the private sector because that's the whole point of government is to protect other people from others. Right, right? government's <laughs> a massive insurance. Program. Yeah, yeah, but doesn't that assume? I was just thinking about this when Joe brought up his point about sort of the, like private versus public sector nudges. Doesn't that assume there's like a value judgment there that public. Maybe not that public's like government nudges are inherently good, but that they're they 
he, he's making an assumption that they have the public's best interest in heart such that they can counter yeah. the private sector. Well, he, that's what he gets through it towards the end of the book. Like, these are some of the arguments against, like, paternalism in that, you know, public officials can be persuaded by outside influence. Right, he's he like, talks yeah. a lot about interest groups, although he's very clear at the beginning that he's like, never saw this, no, no, no interest groups in, influenced our work. <laughs> Yeah, I guess, I think, like, marketing is just nudges applied specifically to trying to make a profit from you as, like, a private company. And then, yeah. um, I mean, I mean, if you wanted to take the, like, skeptical view, nudges are more about, like, power maintenance within the government. Power maintenance how? Like, it, they're tasked with your safety and your health and all of that stuff. Right. And they want to subtly guide you toward the things to make them look good by you got it. Yeah. getting good outcomes. Yeah. I, I, I latched onto your profit thing for a second. I thought that's where you're going. <laughs> Maybe it, it kind of is because it's, since the government isn't turning a profit necessarily, nudges, maybe we can't assume that the nudges that they would implement are at least more proximal to the public, to people's self interest, yeah, people's interest than you would hope Amazon's. Yeah, that's interest. like the altruistic take. Is yeah, like... yeah. <laughs> But I think, well, okay, before we move on completely from chapter 3, I thought it was very interesting. I mean, that's most of this course that we're taking right now in social psychology, right? Like, Mm. people have, not lapses in judgment, but people just, you know, our brains can only do so much. We're kind of um, limited in our capacities to notice things. Isn't the irony of that, though, of just... The irony of that is that n- <laughs> n- nudges are correcting that by taking advantage of that. Yeah, I mean, that speaks to the manipulative way, right? Yeah, it speaks to the manipulative argument that people are, you know, people are offended by this and think it's insidious. I understand that, but I'm not opposed to these nudges because, yeah, we are, you know, we we have biases and like, you know, our brains are, you know, we're we're sacks of like meat and flesh and water like our brains are yes powerful like you know the most powerful computational like object that we know of in the universe but yeah they're limited and they're flawed and they make mistakes they have an existential crisis everything is like how this is a hard pill to swallow because like if we're just starting from what we believed in before as like just American people like Mm -hmm. for the past 100 years like we have free will and like we have liberty and government exists to protect those liberties. But now we understand that like we probably don't have free will. <laughs> like we actually know that we don't have free will because of the psychology stuff that we're like learning about. And now we need we need a government. <laughs> That's a brutal take. We okay. need government. We need government. <laughs> well, you, you made some pretty okay, big reasons. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I, I I'm saying that like, we don't have free will in terms of like some people like are like. I'm not gonna say slaves to their own minds, but like yes, I will say that. I think I see the point. I see the point. You see what I'm talking about? That like we didn't understand that like before this era, like whatever the ten years, twenty years, I guess, social psychology has existed. Probably more than that. A little bit more, but to the extent that we know of it, yeah, behavioral economics. Um, we were we we have not thought about government this way at all. No, no. Applying the, the lessons from psychology in government. Yeah, th- this is new. So people th- think of government as just like, this is our, as we were, you were saying, our insurance 
to like bad stuff happening to us from other like private actors but now we're thinking of it like people make bad decisions humans are irrational we have biases and so we need government to actually like manipulate us so that it can we... be a corrective yeah element yes yeah i'm cool with nudges i just don't like that he i think he oversteps in justifying it where he says oh we're just helping people make more consistent assessments where i think sometimes it is about oh we're guiding people to the best option Say it again. The, the, you said consistent what? Assessments. Where like, oh, you want these things, but sometimes it's too complicated for you to actually get all the way to the end of the assessment and end up at the right option. Oh, probably. so actually, this leads me into like one of my thought his weakest arguments throughout the book was, and you know, this is like more of a political discussion, but you know, he was part of, he was at least in the, the White House when ACA was enacted, as we mentioned previously. And, you know, it was meant to, at least, like, in in what he talks about, in simplifying the information that is displayed to the end consumer, right? He, you know, he mentions how they they made it for cars, right? You're talking about fuel efficiency, and you're, you're mentioning, like, how much money you're saving in five years' time, and, like, you know, all these relevant statistics and what's like salient, right? Mm-hmm. And he makes the argument that, you know, with the Affordable Care Act and the the expansion of the, the marketplaces on the state and, you know, the federal level, that this is great. Have any of you actually been on the marketplaces? Yes. Joe, Sam? The what? You the marketplace? It's a mess. I glanced at it, yeah. Yeah, it, it's horrible. I, I think it's this a- is ton of options is the big thing yeah right? yeah he's his his whole one of the big things he mentions in the book is like making things you know choice overload is like bad obamacare is or the marketplaces i should say are a mess having to decide between <coughs> the health options and i know he brings this up with seniors and medicare and medicare medicare part d and choosing like you know the prescription blood drug plan yeah that's how i felt with being on the marketplace and choosing a, a, a plan, you know, I sat down with my mom. She has a PhD in biostatistics. She's good with numbers, you know. She, yeah. I sat down with her for hours trying to figure out, okay, which is the best plan for me, you know, in New Jersey. You know, there's maybe, there was more than 20, that's for sure. And having to go through choosing... Which plan has the best premiums? Weighing that against the deductibles, the co-insurance, the co-payments, all these extraneous things. We're all in grad school, right? We're, we're relatively intelligent individuals. I would assume, yeah, you know, smarter than maybe like you know just some average schmuck you pull off the street. You know, yeah, we go to good. Depends on the street. My mom has a, my mom has a PhD. Right? Me and my mom. Person, you know, grad school, she has a PhD. You would assume that we have, we would have some capacity to make this decision with relative ease, right? You know, I studied public health in undergrad. Her doctorate is in public health, you know. Some understanding of the system between the two of us. It took us hours. Can you imagine being someone without 
a college degree or someone just an undergrad who has no understanding of how the healthcare markets work. That's how seems... crazy insane this is. Yeah. And this that's... is the, where one of his arguments falls flat for me and what him bringing up the ACA. I that... thought it was terrible. I think he was just trying to sell himself too much, but that doesn't defeat like the principles of nudges because right, that but would I think mean it... having just a couple of options. Right, but it does weaken his argument. For anyone who's experienced... Yeah, to your point, I don't know why he would bring it in. Because I do think healthcare is perhaps... It's it's like the Achilles heel of the nudge. Because I, it's either him or somewhere else that I've read. You know, one one way to nudge around this is to make, make the default option something that is Relative. fine. Yeah. Right? Relatively good. Yeah. yeah. Which... So that's one way of doing it. But I think, to, I think Joe was making... But maybe making this point earlier, that's going to be that for me, for, for some reason in my mind, because of how important healthcare is or whatever, like that fringes on paternalism. Although now that I'm saying that out loud, you still have, you can still choose. It's just that we're going to give you this default option and you could even supplement that with, he has that section about how it's on taxes actually, but he's like, if you're told like, Oh, 80% of people in your, district pay their taxes on time or something like that, you're way more likely to actually pay your taxes. But do something like, look, 80% of people like you choose this plan. Just FYI, maybe that's a great nudge for, for healthcare. That would that would be immensely helpful for me. Yeah. If they and they don't need much information on me. It's like you're you're this age, whatever, like making this much this is like 80% of people with those characteristics are choosing. He was talking about like, oh, I was, when I was a professor, I was just put on the Vanguard, like, savings plan. And right. I was like, okay, yeah. People told me that's good, so it was good. Yeah. <laughs> I hope it's good. <laughs> yeah, that is a situation where it's almost, you don't want nudge anymore. You just want it to take your relevant characteristics, plug them in, and tell you the best plan. Like, <laughs> you, want, you want to Amazon you. <laughs> well, no, not even that. Cause it's like, it's just... You want it to have all the relevant information and then calculate the best plan, right? Oh, I see what you're... Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. There's, yeah. At that point, there's no nudge element to it. Then it's more about just, like, personalizing to, like, what is actually the least expensive. Yeah, it's, it's, like doing a, it's like doing a calculation at that yeah. point. It's not even a nudge. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because you're at the eighty percent of people thing, like that's subjective. Like, well, this is those eighty percent of people could easily have just chosen their own plan. This, yeah, this, or just yeah. like you know, whatever like your personal health situation is doesn't apply to the eighty percent. Right. But this yeah. book is not nudges. This is simpler. It's a it's, you know that's similar true. concept, and he did co-write nudges. Yeah. But this is more about making things simpler. So there's nothing inherently, you know, at least from the nudges standpoint, all. At least from the simpler standpoint, there's nothing wrong with just... Like, okay, so for like with Medicaid, right? Many people don't get Medicaid simply because they just didn't apply. And I think he brings it up like it was just complicated. Like, what if you just automatically opt them into it? Or rather, it becomes an opt-out system. Every time I see something, like with the childcare stuff that we've been doing, like 30% of all eligible people, like, got this or whatever it's like damn dude you're yeah. like like all, all of them should have it you know yeah sure yeah, all yeah. the eligible people yeah. should have the thing yeah like medicaid fafsa like that kind of stuff where it's very clearly like just being default opted in 
puts you way better off than not having that option on the table. Like that's, yeah, that's like good, simpler, good nudge. Yeah, with, with free and reduced price lunch stuff as well at schools, which I actually didn't know, mm. but that they're automatically enrolling people in that instead of having to have. What is that in tonight's thing at town hall? No, no, no. But in here, he oh, mentions I it. That. I th- or maybe, maybe mm, I read so many of these things. I'm pretty sure he mentioned. Yeah, it was in here. Yeah, where he says basically, previously parents had to fill out and return a oh, form to apply. Probably for automatic f- for the people. For free, yeah, that would stand a reason as to where it would have been. Thanks for listening. Our music is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. And be sure to stick around for episode two as we wrap up our roundtable discussion. Is that Rage Against the Machine? What is? Automatic for the people. That sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> that must be where I've heard it. If it's, if it's not a Rage song, I'm sure it will be soon. I think it's an album. <laughs> it's an album. <laughs> I'm going to get a beer.